Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Federico Alvarez, the author of Time and Space in Video Games, a Cognitive Formalist Approach. The publisher here is Transcript. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the audio platform of your choice. You are more than welcome to leave also feedback or questions on Spotify. Feel free to share this episode with your friends or wherever you see fit. And now back to the show. Video games are temporal artifacts. They change with time as players interact with them in in accordance with rules. In this study, Federico Alvarez investigates the formal aspects of video games that determine how these changes are produced and sequenced. Theories of time perception drawn from the cognitive science lay the groundwork for an in-depth analysis of these features, making for a comprehensive account of time in this novel or not-so-novel medium. This book-length study dedicated to time perception and video games is an indispensable resource for game scholars and game developers alike. And that's very important to us also. Its reader-friendly style makes it readily accessible to an interested layperson. As you can clearly see, so many reasons to talk, so many reasons to chat. Federico, welcome to the show. Hi, Rolf. Uh, thanks for having me here. Hmm. I wonder if you could begin our conversation by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, sure. I, well, I, uh, I don't know where I should start, but I, <laughs> I was born and raised in Argentina. That's where I studied. Um, and I studied what could be translated maybe as media studies. We call it something different there. Uh, it was film, television. And there also um, I studied visual arts. And was after my studies, I was active a little bit as a media artist for a while. That was actually my goal when studying, like becoming like, I don't know, doing television, film, media art, stuff like that. Uh, but then I, you know, my MA, when I did my, my, what would be the equivalent of my MA thesis, I sort of, um, you know, it sort of scratched an itch. And I, I think I got the, um, I liked doing research more than I expected to. So after a couple of years, I decided to, to return to academia and start my PhD. And, you know, making a long story short, 
I came to Germany and started my PhD at the University of Cologne with Benjamin Beil. Uh, and later I also, um, um, Professor Benjamin Beil is at the University of Cologne in the uh, Department of Media Culture and um, Theater. I hope I got that translation wrong, uh, right <laughs> of the name. Medienkulturwissenschaft und Theater for the German speakers. Um, and <laughs> then uh, soon after, Gundolf Freyamut here at the, at the Cologne Game Lab, where I right now, became my second advisor. So I did my PhD as a cooperative project between those two institutes, the Cologne Game Lab of the uh, University of Applied Sciences in Cologne, I'm talking about. And um, that PhD was what became the book we're going to discuss today. Yeah, the time and space in video games. Um, so, yeah, and after that, uh, I was done with that in 2018. The book came out in 2019. So I, I'm already, you know, into the postdoc phase quite a, a few years in. And so I went, so from training, I'm a humanities scholar, um, but I then, my first postdoc moved to the natural sciences and worked also in the top, on the topic of time in video games, but experimentally with experimental psychologists, neuroscientists, testing how we can manipulate the perception of the passage of time with virtual environments. Um, after that, I was for a year coordinator of a project called ICEDA, uh, Innovative Solutions to Eliminate Domestic Abuse. And um, then I left that job uh, last month for the current thing I'm doing, which is I'm a substitute professor here at the, for Media and Game Studies here at the Cologne Game Lab. So that is my, yeah, that's the brief, I think, uh, story of my academic uh, sort of career so far. All right. So, of course, we have to check for your Ludo Street credibility now. So please tell us, what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you are playing right now? Yeah, well, favorite, favorite, of course, it uh, depends on how you interpret it. <laughs> but uh, I think the game that made me fall in love with video, game, video games when I was a child was Sonic 2. I had the Mega Drive, and I absolutely loved that game. I also had a Nintendo before, and I liked video games, but I think that game has a very special place in my heart. Um, but I also put up there with, with Sonic 2 Portal. It's a game that, of course, came out much later. I was older already when I played it, but it blew my mind. And it, uh, um, I was also always a fan of the first-person shooter genre. I like how this game sort of subverted that genre and how it built storytelling into... Uh, fully interactive game without cutscenes, without nothing. I think Valve is excels at doing that. And I think Portal is also like a prime example of how to tell a story um, without, you know, cutscenes or any other tools, but the tools that the video game medium, the interactive tools of the video game medium give you. So I think that that game's probably at the top of my list. Yeah, right now. Or have you heard about Half-Life 2 Part 3? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, wait, waiting anxiously for, for <laughs> whatever. I mean, Alex was amazing. You know, for all of us who were waiting for, for something to happen with Half-Life for so long, Alex really scratched that itch, but uh, really still waiting for Half-Life 3. I, I wish I could say that's what I'm playing right now, but <laughs> uh, I'm playing the Dead Space remake and uh, Sifu like switching between those two. Yeah. All right. Well, I have a lot of fun with those. Yeah. Yeah. Before we start <laughs> our, our deep dive, uh, please tell our listeners, um, how did you come to write Time and Space in video games in the first place? 
Well, um, as I said, I, I came to Germany and I was first a bit lost, honestly. I didn't know if I wanted to study like uh, something with arts or what to do. And then I decided by talking to friends and people who are also studying here um, that maybe it was a good idea to do a PhD and you know, get back really into academia, like full on. And uh, during my MA studies, it was a combination, I think, of interests uh, that led me to this particular topic. When I was writing my MA thesis, I wrote, wrote it on the, sort of the intersection of the art world and hacker history and hacker ethics. Um, hackers understood in the, in the sense of technology enthusiasts, you know, not this, you know, the more popular way of seeing the term, which is like, uh, I don't know, like this uh, cyber criminals or something or perpetrators, but um, technology enthusiasts that really helped in the 60s and 70s and 80s develop the medium of the computer, the, you know, um, or the computer technology further. Um, and they developed what could be considered the first video game or maybe one of the first video games, Space War. Um, and by studying that history and researching that history, I also bumped into the game studies literature, which was unknown to me until then, pretty much. You know, we're talking about 2007, eight. Uh, so the game studies fields was very young. And also in Argentina, I think it had, hadn't made any waves yet or very, very little waves in Argentina. So I, I hadn't came across that in my studies, come across that in my studies. So um, I realized, oh, there's a whole field that studies games. This sounds something like I would be <laughs> into, you know. Um, so I approached um, Benjamin Bayer, who was just started as a professor, junior professor back then, um, uh, the Institute for Media, Culture, and Theater at the University of Cologne, and just said, hey, I would like to do a PhD. How about you are my supervisor? And I had other ideas in mind at the moment. And then he looked at, he asked me to send him stuff that I'd written and blah, among other things I said in my portfolio that I had as a media artist. And there, I had been working a lot with the topic of time um, and doing like photography videos interactive stuff with the topic of time. And I said, why don't you do it about time in video games? You know, if you're so into this topic and, you know, something I was right in front of my nose, uh, I didn't see it even myself. And of course it clicked right away and said, yeah, of course, that's what I have to do. And, you know, also I did like a little bit of preliminary research and sort of realized as well that it was still kind of a gap in the game studies literature. Maybe you could say it still kind of is. I mean, there's, because it's such a vast, big topic that covers so much of what gaming is about. And, um, there aren't many people focused on it. There are people who have de dedicated parts of their, I don't know, their research to it. I mean, there's a chapter in Yule's book, Half Real, for example, about time, stuff like that. But uh, there aren't many people that were fully dedicated to that. So I thought, well, maybe this is my chance to, to do what I like and also contribute to, to the, the game studies field. So that's also how, how I came uh, to this topic, basically. Yeah. So um, could you provide an overview of your book's main thesis then and how it explores the concepts of time and space in video games from a cognitive uh, formalist perspective? Yeah, yeah the book is, is mostly an exploratory work um, in a way that, um, I mean, there had been a lot of work done or, or some work done at least uh, by game study scholars on the research of the formal uh, um, aspects of video games that, you know, structure their temporality and stuff like that. Um, and that was a part that I definitely wanted to look into. So that was one of my main research questions, right? What are the formal elements of video games that give rise to their temporality and that structure the temporality? 
So I, I did a huge literature like uh, review. And then I also, I, I, I think I expanded the state of the art a little bit with my own observations. So th that's one of the, the things that I explored first. But the other thing um, is that um, I think like, like I wanted to, or I felt like just looking at the formal elements wasn't giving the full picture, right? Games or video games are in the end experiences and uh, so we as players experience them while playing them and a central part of our experience is time perception. And so to really understand what these formal aspects are doing while we're playing, I thought, well, we have to bring in, I have to bring in the psychology of time or some, or it could be even phenomenology, philosophy, you know, something uh, about how we perceive time. And I was always fascinated by, by cognitive science and that, well, that was, what was also informing my artistic practice before so I, I started doing research on that and exploring what do we know or what do scientists know about um, time perception that could inform, uh, you know, us about wh why our video, video games are like they are and, and what do video games do to us while we're playing them. Um, so that was the other research question, right? How can we understand video games through the lens of time perception? And time perception, just to, to clarify it in a way, uh, is kind of, it's a very complex thing, right? With, we think of time perception and maybe we think of, well, the passage of time, right? Uh, did time pass fast or, or slowly or what in our experience? But it's, it's more than that. It's do we perceive events as simultaneous or in sequence? Do we perceive them happening now or is it a memory? So is it the past or is it something that we're predicting that will happen? So is it the future? And we also perceive causation. Causation is what, what structures also our perception of time. Events happen, but they're a cause or an effect of another event in the way we perceive it. So um, we, um, you know, time perception is so fundamental to our experience that it has to be, that's what was my thinking getting into this, has to be fundamental to our experience of video games in many ways. And space, um, to clarify it, because the title seems like overly ambitious, perhaps time and space, two of the biggest topics there are, you know. Um, Space is only important as it pertains time perception, as it is relevant to the perception of time. Because we perceive time through space and we understand time through spatial metaphors. Um, so for example, we use calendars, right? Calendars are spatial metaphors that organize time spatially. We, well, the hourglass is another typical example of how we spatially can uh, represent time. Um, we speak, for example, of time in the ego moving metaphor or the time moving metaphor which means I'm either moving through this substance we call time, right? For example, oh, the, the you know, time of the hour, time I'm meeting Rudolf for the podcast is coming, right? It's almost up. That's, you know, time moving and, and approaching me, but also, oh, I'm almost approaching the time of the podcast, I could say, you know, something along those lines. And that's me moving within time. So we have, we switch between these two ways of speaking about time, but they are very spatial. Um, so that's why... I wanted to clarify, that's why space made it into the title. That was such a big part of the thesis, not because of space per se, but because of because time has a very spatial qualities in our in our perception. Um, so yeah, I think I hope that answers the mm -hmm. question. Yeah. <laughs> so this 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 perfectly leads uh, leads over to to my next pair of questions because 
Um, I was wondering how do video games challenge traditional storytelling techniques when it comes to handling time and space? And this could be also, uh, of course, combined with the with the questions of uh, your specific examples or case studies from from your book now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, in terms of storytelling, there's a lot to say, really, um, because, well, games are such a rich storytelling medium um, that... And time is a central aspect of, of storytelling, right? Stories take place in time. So um, there are many ways in which uh, games challenge traditional, uh, you know, senses of storytelling or uh, they, and they bring in new, new ways in which stories can be told for many reasons, right? But some of them is how time behaves in games or could we call it game time, you know, how a game time behaves. Um, but also for but the fact that I, they're interactive in the sense that, you know, players are inputting commands that are changing and affecting directly the game world. And then the game world reacts to that. And then you have to readjust what you're doing. So you're, you're in this dance with this, with the medium. So it's not like, as you know, of course, watching a film where you're maybe like trying to, to interpret what's happening and uh, predict what's going to happen next, what a character is going to do, but you're not really influencing what's happening on the, on the, on the screen. In a video game, you're very much influencing what's happening on the screen by pressing buttons, right? Um, so all of that um, does very interesting things to storytelling and gaming. And um, one way, for example, that this challenges uh, storytelling is that um, in video games, we keep going back in time, typically, right? Not in every video game, but say, take a classic video game like Doom, you play for a little bit, right? It's a challenging game. It's a shooter. So you're being shot by enemies. At some point you die. And so what you do is you reload your last save state and you play from there. So you go back effectively in game time and to the past, to a previous save, a game state, and then continue playing from there. So you know what's going to happen next. From that point on, when you reload, you know what the future is. So that has particular... Um, challenges for storytelling, I think, um, because um, if you want players to really be on the same level with the character they're controlling, then um, it is advisable to try to avoid this, not necessarily in all cases, you know, but there are some game designers who have tried to go around this and um, For example, David Cage, I think, is a, it's a good example of this uh, with his games, you know, the Quantic Dream uh, developer, um, where you're not allowed to go back in time in a way, right? Um, because as long as, uh, with the moment you go back in time, you have knowledge that your character doesn't have. So the character is reacting, is acting according to knowledge they don't have. Uh, you know, in the next room, there are three enemies, they're in particular positions, they have particular guns. You're strategizing and the character will behave according to knowledge that they don't have. And there's this knowledge gap between player and player character. And this is what I argue, and I don't think it's a big problem in a lot of games. In Doom, for instance, I don't think it is a big problem because it's a game that doesn't emphasize storytelling and character development. Um, it's more of a ludic game. But some games like David Cage's games, like Heavy Rain, for example, or Beyond Two Souls, um, the, the, what David Cage does is there is no load save mechanic there. You just play and continue playing, and whatever happens, happens. You have to deal with it. And um, there are different endings, but it's not clear which path will lead you to which ending necessarily. Some decisions 
some things you're not even doing on purpose. You're just missing some information in some room that you just didn't find a letter or something, or that would have given you key information or stuff like that. So um, you just continue playing, and then maybe you get the good ending, maybe you get the bad one. Um, but it's not this iterative process of going back in time and redoing the section so that you can get it right the way you want it, you know? Um, I mean, I have to clarify, you, you can still restart chapters in Heavy Rain, and of course you can also restart the full game, but you don't have the load save mechanic, and the game sort of tries to discourage you from restarting. And even if you restart, like I said, it's not very clear um, what you did exactly that led to that outcome uh, that you want to change. So this is one way, for example, right? And there are many, like what I've called in this, in my, in my book, solutions to, to this paradox that's produced by this um, knowledge gap between player and player character. The paradox being that the, the player character behaves according to knowledge that they don't have. And that, that's one of them, yeah. But other, other solutions maybe, for example, that uh, characters have the power to rewind time. This is also happens in a game like uh, Life is Strange, where you have this capacity to go back in time and redo what you did, but now it's framed as part of the fictional world. It's diegetic in a way, right? So this character, Max, this teenager, um, has the power to rewind time and then make new decisions according to information that she acquired uh, in the, you know, quote-unquote future. Um, and you, the player, that are controlling Max and Max have both the same information. So that knowledge gap is also erased through this uh, gimmick, or it's not a gimmick, it's through this mechanic, let's say. I don't want to, <laughs> it's, it's actually a pretty pretty clever mechanic and it's, it works very well. Um, in some other games, it will may work more as a gimmick, but um, I don't think in, in Life is Strange. I think that's a good example. Anyway, so that this is one example, but there are many other ways yeah, in which storytelling is sort of reshaped and challenged um, through the way time works in games. Yeah, so um, mm -hmm. I do wonder, which which kind of role do player agency and interactivity in general play in the cognitive formulas analysis of time and space and video games? I mean, how do players' choices impact their their perception of of uh, these these very elements? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, the way we make choices is by looking into the future, right? Um, and the way we look into the future is by trying to predict what's going to happen. We we don't have a crystal ball, but we are all the time predicting what's going to happen next. Not just in video games, of course. In the morning, I wake up and I have more or less a rough plan of what my day is going to look like. Um, and, you know, you can zoom out, you go to your calendar, you have a plan for your week and your month and so on. We're always trying to do this and predict and organize our, our future in a way uh, to make it more controllable, approachable, and not chaotic, you know. So... Um, but games like to play with this and in a way to play with the player. Um, in many ways. And so in all games, you're always predicting and always trying to make decisions based on, you know, this idea of, okay, what's going to happen next? And like I said before, you can go back in time. So you have in some games, in, in you know, a lot of games, very accurate information of the future. So you're always predicting what's going to happen next. So your agency is very much informed by information about the future. Um, so that's, that's how video games also differ from real life, right? Um, I don't go into my day knowing exactly what's going to happen, but in games, it's like, you know, many have, and I do it myself as well in the book, have done, made this analogy with the movie Groundhog Day, where Bill Murray, the character uh, Bill Murray plays, is stuck in this time loop, and he's reliving the same day over and over and over. He knows at some point exactly what's going to happen in that day, 
perfectly and he can predict every single thing that's going to happen um, in that day in the little town on Punxsutawney where, where he is. Uh, players, video game players have more or less that, like, that experience in similar ways. It differs in other ways, but uh, it's this experience of I know exactly what's going to happen next because I've already done it. I've already experienced it. Um, but for example, I, I have one chapter dedicated to uh, the game Resident Evil um, because I think that that's one good example of how games can toy with this idea of, of uh, you know, research management, prediction, and, and, um, uh, and planning, because um, they play with our target perception in a very clever, interesting way. In Resident Evil, as you may know, it's a survival horror game, and you're trapped. I'm talking about the first one. You're trapped in a mansion, and there are zombies there. And you're pretty much alone. Every now and then you may cross another character, but pretty much alone. It's a very scary situation, very tense, uh, scary atmosphere. You know, um, like gives you the, like this this let's call it the, the visual and audiovisual layer of the game. Um, put you in a sort of state of mind that it's tense. It's uh, you know you're scared and you're jumpy and you tend to be impulsive when you're in this state of mind. When you're afraid, when you're very emotionally aroused. Um, there's a lot of research also that shows this. Yeah, we tend to be a lot more present focused when we're in, when we're in states of mind like that. Um, um, it doesn't matter what the emotion is. In states of emotional arousal, whether it's fear or love or whatever, make us makes us more impulsive. Um, so the game puts you like that with this narrative framing, this setting, this audiovisual layer, um, and also through the mechanics in some way because our characters are pretty weak and they're easy to, they die easily in a way. Um, and what we have to do is, well, make decisions according to this. And But the best way to survive Resident Evil, being a survival horror game, is to be very thrifty and very, you know, um, careful with resources. Because another thing about the design of this game and the mechanical aspect of it is that we have very limited resources. And the resources are ammunition, maybe like uh, items that will give us back... Uh, Hit points like herbs, you know, or med packs or whatever, um, and they are, you know, very rare to come around. Even the fact that you can save the game is limited because you have you need to find ink ribbons to interact with a typing machines. So uh, you're always trying to do as much progress as you can between each use of an ink ribbon. But then the more you push it, the the more you're risking to progress. You're risking to lose. That increases tension as well a lot. So there's a tension there between two, two what you call temporal frames. This very present focused temporal frame that fear puts us in, we're impulsive, we're very present focused. And the present fo the, the future focus that being thrifty and a good, you know, um, administering resources requires, like uh, administrating resources properly requires being future oriented, planning ahead and controlling what you do right now. But if you go walk into a room and a zombie jumps through a window, you'll be prone to just start shooting, you know, and, and maybe miss a couple of shots and not be too accurate. And so I think the game puts us in that, in that in this state where you have to engage in self-control to succeed. So I, I call it here the aesthetics of self-control. And it's very much connected to our time perception. Um, so this tension between the present focus and the future focus um, that you have to, as a player, master in a way to do master of the game. It's not just about being good with your thumbs, you know, uh, and your reflexes. It's about mastering self-control and the balance between um, timeframes. So I think that's one example as well as how, how player agency um, is impacted by, by perception of time.
Now, I especially find this, uh, I think of this as as very thought-provoking, especially the example you were just given about um, Resident Evil. But do you think there are also um, other surprising findings or insights from your research that you think our listeners might find particularly intriguing or, yeah, just, as I said, thought-provoking even? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, you know, there's, I think, a lot. I think I already mentioned when um, I was starting to, to write my PhD and doing, well, actually, when I started with the research, not even the writing, I didn't expect time perception to be such um, a fundamental aspect of our um, experience of video games and to, to, you know, to inform so many aspects of them, which in hindsight seems kind of obvious now, but uh, I guess not knowing so much about it as uh, I know right now back then, um, it wasn't that clear. Like, uh, so that was the thing that surprised me in the end. I, I ended writing about more things than I expected to, more aspects of games than I expected to because of this. And um, uh, I think one, one aspect that I also, I, I didn't expect, for example, to end up writing about causation. In the end, I, I know they were somewhat connected, but I thought, well, maybe it's one step removed from what I'm trying to do, and I can leave it away. But I, in the end, I, I started writing a chapter. I ended up writing a chapter on causation because, yeah, of course, time is you know we see event A, then event B, event C, and then we we create a sequence. But that sequence is not just random events happening in a vacuum. A lot of these events are connected, and the way they are connected in our perception is through causation and. Um, that's the way we make sense of you know, video game worlds as well. Yeah? I, you know, press a button, Mario, oh, Mario jumped. Okay, now I know there's a causal connection between my, what my thumb's doing and what Mario's doing. But also there are causal connections between the entities within the game world, right? It's Mario jumps and it lands on a Goomba, then it kills it. And, um, and like, you know, by this process of trial and error and that then we, we start unveiling the causal networks you know, that are ruling these games. Um, but there are also other interesting ways in which causation affects our perception of, of games. And it's like, I call it in the book, the, the freedom versus urgency problem. And I think intuitively, I think a lot of us have kind of come across it. It happens mostly in big open world games. And um, when you play, for example, let's say The Witcher 3, um, you have this huge open map and you can go pretty much wherever you want and do a lot of side quests, right? Like on horse races, destroying monster nests, uh, bandit outposts, whatever. Um, yeah, you can play a game of cards, you know, called Gwent and stuff like that. But there's also a main quest. You have to save Siri, a woman who's kind of like a daughter to you, is being chased by the wild hunt, this group of dark elves or whatever. And she's in imminent danger. So this is, the main story gives you a sense of urgency, whereas the rest of the game tells you you're free to explore and, you know, yeah, Siri can wait, you know, you won't, uh, you can play another game of went. And I didn't realize that I, I had like intuitively felt that that made some noise, you know, this clash between um, the urgency that part of the games, you know, is conveying and the freedom that the other part of the game is giving you. And uh, the reason I think that makes noise, it's because of our sense of causation. And there's a great theory by uh, Leonard Talmy. I think it's Leonard. Leonard Talmy, yeah, a linguist that basically explains 
through language how we perceive causation. And this has also been tested empirically by psychologists. And, um, and he, sees, he says, well, we see a lot of patterns. We have like a little script in our head and we just look for these patterns in the world of causation. Um, some of these patterns are, well, I kicked the ball, so the ball flew away, you know? And, um, but other patterns are about letting things happen. All right, well, I took off the plug from the bathtub so the water was able to flow. You know, the water wants to flow. I'm not, the, this uh, plug is not allowing it the, and I take it away. Now, it, now I allow it to flow. And these are called letting patterns. And what's happening is when we're not going, running behind Siri, trying to find it as fast as possible, in our minds, there, there's a letting pattern that we're noticing intuitively. Oh, I'm maybe letting Siri get caught by the wild hunt because I'm not, you know, urgently looking for her. Um, so that's how I, that's what it was, and I surprised in a way as well, how causation also influences both the narrative and the mechanic layer of games and this disconnect this, this that I was feeling as a player. I still loved The Witcher 3, The Way Hunt. It's one of my favorite games of all time. I don't, I'm not saying this is game ruining, but it's, um, it's interesting to know what's, what's happening there, maybe to try to find workarounds. And like I think Zelda Breath of the Wild did it beautifully with, well, the calamity just ha already happened. And yeah, you have to like try to fight Ganon and right, take him away. But uh, first of all, try to level up, discover the world. And, uh, and exploration was part of the quest, you know? And uh, all this, everything you do contributes to Link becoming more powerful too, to defeat Ganon. And since the calamity already happened, it's not as urgent. Um, so there are many ways, but yeah, being conscious about these patterns that we're projecting onto the world, I think can help us understand also um, these, these sensations, these feelings that we, that we experience while playing games and why sometimes some things make, make a little bit of noise. So that was one thing that surprised me and I think may surprise the reader as well. Now they know about it, but <laughs> readers that haven't heard yeah. this podcast. <laughs> So um, yeah. looking ahead, um, I wonder how do you yeah. see the study of time and, of course, then also at least a little bit of space in video games evolving and what new directions of, or questions do you hope to uh, future researchers will explore in this uh, particular field? Yeah, well, the connection of time and space is a really fascinating one. And I think there's a lot of potential to, to try to, you know, with virtual spaces to... Um, study this relationship because, you know, virtual reality, for example, it's a very immersive technology. It gives you a strong sense of presence in that space. And I've done some studies about this. Like, uh, so I, I've sort of firsthand already had a, uh, like a taste of it, you know, and I, I can, I think it's a great uh, tool to create all sorts of different spaces, compare them and see how they affect time perception. In a way, I love a quote by a physicist. It's, it's called uh, Julian Barbour. And he's, he said this in the context of a discussion about the physics of time, but I'm completely taking it out of context because I think it explains beautifully what the brain is doing. And it's, uh, he says that unlike the emperor dressed in nothing, time is nothing dressed in clothes. And I can only describe the clothes. He's talking about the emperor's new clothes, you know, this um, fable by I think Hans Christian Andersen where this emperor thought that he was wearing this beautiful garment and who, the people who couldn't see it or couldn't see it because they weren't smart enough to see it. Um, so he said, like, oh, of course, I'm smart enough to see it. And he was actually naked and walking around town naked. Um, you know, but Barbour flips it and say, well, time is not the emperor dressing nothing. 
Um, time is clothes without an emperor, in a way. I can only describe the clothes. We're gonna, and that's what the brain does. And the clothes are space. That the, this, this clothes, this space we're looking at in real world, but also virtual space, in, it's our temporal garments, in a way. And time is this emperor. It's the name this, we, skip to, we give to this non-existent emperor, in a way. Um, but what we see is events, things happen in space, things moving, changing state, and all that, and, and you know, uh, properties of the space can also give us um, different senses of time. So I think I would love to see a lot more research of people creating game spaces or virtual spaces to, to see, um, to try to elucidate more this relationship between uh, time and space. Um, one of the most fascinating aspects of time in this sense is also, I think, passage of time, uh, the sense that we, you know, we have a sort of feeling for it. It's time passing fast or quickly. You know, in games, we, have, we get into states of flow and often, and then time passes really fast, right? But if we're bored, time passes very slowly and it starts dragging. And I think this relationship also between space and events and, um, and this feeling of the passage of time has a very, is a very, inter very interesting area of study. And there's, um, you know, the typical, so as I mentioned, you know, fun, Time goes by fast. Boredom. Time goes by slowly. There's like a third, like a third option there that's been. It's very, you know, it's in very early stages of research, but there is some research that has shown this empirically um, that there is one mental state where time passes by slowly, but we still have a positive feeling. And some have called it this idleness. In German, you could call it, I think, Muse. Uh, that's at least the term that some people have used it. Idleness, I don't think it's a great translation for Musa. This is actually, I don't know, the way some German scholars translated <laughs> Musa. But it's this feeling of, oh yeah, I'm here, I'm relaxed, time is going by slowly, but I'm not, you know, in any hurry. And I'm just taking it in. You could call it also a mindful state. And I think a lot of games are also aiming for that now, these new trends of, of slow play, slow gaming, um, where, you know, even mainstream games like Red Dead Redemption are, are leaning into that, or you know, Euro Truck Simulator. Um, and I think some researchers have, have sort of linked that to boredom, but I think, uh, I, for example, like Oli Laino or Sebastian Möhring, I love their research, but I think an even more accurate label would be this idleness label. And I look at this uh, experience of these games from this vantage point of time perception, of yeah, time is passing by slowly, but I'm not quite bored. It shares this property, this experience with boredom, but it also shares a property with flow. It's pleasant. It's enjoyable. And I think there can be a lot more research done there. And that's where I'm trying to go with my research. But also, I would love to see more on that, of that as well. And this, this, this answer, very, thank you very much for this answer, kind of answer, because it perfectly blends in with the, uh, with the next question. Since I'd like also to ask, let's, let's get a little bit, a bit of meta for a minute and zoom out a bit. So how do, you, how do you see the current state of digital game studies, especially in Germany now that, you're, if, that you uh, have uh, arrived in full at Cologne, one might even say. So what are the current hot topics in your opinion? Well, um, Germany, I mean, that's a vibrant game studies community. I think game studies is still, I, I would say, uh, small comparatively you know, to other fields of study, right? Internationally, but also locally, nationally. But uh, compared to other countries, I think Germany has quite a bit of game studies um, with very interesting, uh, a very interesting mix of, uh, of perspectives from psychology to, to philosophy, you know, media studies. Um, and, you know, 
I hesitated to, you know, say where I want, where things should go. I, I can't say where I would like things to go, but it has to do with this time perception, of course, um, uh, angle a lot. Uh, but um, yeah, game studies, I know it's such a young discipline. There's such a lot of work to do that I, what I can say here is I hope to see just more young scholars in Germany and abroad uh, seeing that, well, this is a vibrant, exciting field of study and video games are so central to our culture right now that I hope to see just more young scholars getting into game studies and from the perspective of their choosing. You know, I would be loved just to see more of this mix of disciplines and I think game studies was, in a way, emerged as a very interdisciplinary field without a strong domination of particular fields. We, um, and I hope it stays this way as well. I, I think that's fascinating. And so that's what I hope, actually, to see this emergence of, of, of this growth of the field. And on a meta level, I would like to see um, game studies study programs as well. <laughs> that would be nice. You know, that's something that's not there yet, I think. I mean, we have... Maybe, maybe, I mean, I'm uninformed and you can correct me, but I think there was a lot of game design with game studies seminars or media studies with game studies seminars, you know, but a game studies degree per se, that would be a nice thing to, to see, you know. Um, and and uh, so I think Germany has the potential to get there. You know, it's one of the countries where, where the community is vibrant and big enough uh, that it will, could have the political, you know, uh, weight to, to manage to do that at some point. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, maybe I got too meta, but no, <laughs> I don't no, know if this answers your question. There's yeah. always there, there's always some room for a beacon of hope, <laughs> because I exactly feel the same. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, let's see. If if for your next your next book is only a matter of time, I guess. So we can we can re regroup and rechat about this. So um, let's see how far we have become then. Um, we've taken a lot of your time, actually. So please, one last question. What are you working on now? And of course, what will you be playing next? Yeah, well, uh, in terms of work, I have two sort of um, parallel lines of research. One, I, I keep collaborating or plan to keep collaborating with psychologists and get a little bit into this idleness uh, concept I, had, uh, I was talking about. So that's one thing. Um, but that's like a... Now it's something that I, I, I have... Um, made my made it my secondary thing. It's not something I want to stop, but it's not going to be my my main uh, topic. I think I've been working. Uh, I had this project on the side burner for a while, on the back burner for a while, and uh, I would like to make it from now on my, one of my main projects. And it's a project to um, theorize the mental state of play. I think um, from the perspective of the philosophy of mind, also informed by by psychology cognitive psychology and, and, and neuroscience. But I think uh, a lot has been done in play studies. So I, I'm going to broaden a little bit my scope from video games in particular to play in general. Um, and um, I think a lot has been done, you know, to describe and try to define place in terms of what does do play activities look like? What are the formal aspects of these activities? And what does, how do they differ from non-play activities, for example? There's a lot of work being done on functional aspects of play in child development, in social bonding, community building, stuff like that. So you have these two functional and formal approaches. I think the mental, the psychological approach to play is still a bit, uh, you know, under-researched. There is stuff there, but I think um, there is 
a way through certain theories. I don't you know, want to get too deep into this, but um, it's too early, but uh, certain theories in philosophy of mind that could help define the mental state or to understand play as a mental state, regardless of what activity you're doing, you can be playful as long as you're in this particular mental state. And that's what I will try to define and hopefully uh, have published something soon throughout the course of the next year. Yeah. Not a book, but a paper. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a great project. So Federico, I want to thank you for being on the show today and yeah, I really enjoyed it. So take care and goodbye. Yeah. Thank, thank you. It's been a pleasure. So dear listeners, I hope uh, you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself, and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. And again, please share this episode where you see fit. And now, see you in a bit. <laughs>